0: such a great joy to stand before you and get to, get to preach from God's word. I don't get to do this real often, partly because of my role here at the church, but today was sort of a, today's kind of a special day. It's actually my birthday, believe it or not. Thanks, thanks. So I, I think the other pastors let me preach because they thought they could get out of getting me lunch during the week, but they're not off the hook. No, it, it seriously is my birthday today. I turned 29 which might, might not seem like a big deal, maybe I seem like a, a pup, but it does actually feel like kind of a big deal to me. 29 seems like sort of a significant birthday. Technically speaking, this is the 30th September 5th of my life. And in our culture, we make a lot of jokes about turning 30, especially if you're in your 20s or in your teens. 30s is a big number. For me, my 20s has been a, a really significant decade in my life, and I think that this reflects really the culture that we live in. For me, my 20s have been a whole season really that I have spent figuring out who I'm going to be, dating different people, going to school, leaving school and working for a while, going back to school, leaving school and working again, going overseas for a little while, coming back and finishing school. And I don't think I'm atypical when I say that in our, in America, for a lot of us when we're in our 20s, it's been almost this sort of final bastion of adolescence where we're figuring out what life is really about. What's going to make our life significant? What's important to us? And here I am today. I've turned 29. I'm a husband. I'm a father of almost two babies. I'm a pastor. And I'm on the cusp, or so I feel like, of, of a big new season in my life where I've got to figure out who I am. I've got to know who I am now. I have some responsibility. Um, I don't mean to just to talk and talk about myself, but during this last This last decade, my 20s, as I've been asking these questions who am I going to be? What am I going to do with my life? What's important? I've been able to sort of stand back and observe other men who are in that next season my father, my grandfathers, uh, friends who are in that next season, pastors. Probably, unfortunately, I've had other influences that I've shared with my brothers in our culture, like uh, George Costanza, a.k.a. Art Vandelay who lies to impress women, tells them that he's an architect because he thinks his job is insignificant. There was Al Bundy, if any of you remember, married with children. He was a professional shoe salesman. He fit shoes in the women's department of a, of a department store. Homer Simpson, who could never find the right button on the, on the control panel at the power plant, and who tried to put on weight so that he could qualify for disability by means of being overweight, so that he wouldn't have to work at all, if you remember that episode. And then on the other hand, so those are the guys that have been the example to me of, of hating work and just doing it because you have to pay rent or you have to pay for groceries or pay for insurance or whatever. And then on the other hand, we have this other set of influences in our culture. So for me, those have included Jack Bauer. And then the boys, Josh and Toby and Sam from the West Wing, if you're a West Wing fan. And these are the category of, of, of icons in our culture whose whole life is their job. If you're a fan of the West Wing, you know that Toby... He can't stop working even when he's in bed at home with a bullet hole through his chest. He lives and eats and breathes his job. Jack Bauer works 24-hour shifts once a week, nonstop, (laughs) right? So in college then, when I became a Christian, having observed and kind of consumed these images, both of my father and also in our pop culture, I became a believer in college. And in, in the context of my church and in some of the college ministries that I was involved in, I got exposed to this other sort of paradigm of work, which basically said that the only work that had any significance was work where you're directly proclaiming the the gospel all the time as your occupation. So pretty much unless you're on your knees praying or reading your Bible or telling somebody uh, the the spiritual laws, everything else was kind of worldly and sort of uh, consequential, kind of coincidental to what your real occupation was supposed to be. Uh, And so the only thing that really had any significance basically was being in full-time ministry. And honestly, although I hate to admit it, all these different influences have circled around my head throughout this decade as I've asked myself, who am I going to be? What's going to be the source of significance in my life? Thankfully, I don't think I've had to answer that question all by myself because God has spoken directly to some of these questions, to this dilemma that I think I share with other men in our culture. In His Word, and we're going to we're going to go to that uh, go to that this morning, uh, and I think that as as we as we go to the Proverbs that Matt read earlier, we're going to find that the core of God's message to us about work comes down to this, and the way that it's presented in in the Proverbs is that laziness, being a sluggard, is not just is not just folly; it's actually sin, because the work that God has called us to, in its right season. Is worship. It's a means of grace by which He accomplishes sanctification in our lives. And it's, it's a means of, of us extending God's grace to His world by participating in His work of providence. So before I go there, let's go ahead and bow our heads in prayer. Almighty God, we come before You because Your, your wisdom is infinite and vast and so much greater than ours, Lord. God, we acknowledge that we are small. And as hard as we work to make our way through this life, uh, God, if it were just up to us and if we were left on our own, Lord, we would genuinely be hopeless. Lord, we thank you that you haven't left us in that condition, but that you've granted that great wisdom to us through your word. Lord, we believe that the Bible is the living and breathing word of God. And so as we come to your word this morning, uh, God, we don't come to it casually, but we come to it reverently, Lord. God, I pray that both for myself as the preacher and for this congregation, as we come together to your word, that you would illuminate it, that you would give us your true message, that you would speak to our hearts about what it is to work hard, to be a a member of your new kingdom, to honor you with our work, Lord. God, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. So the main text that I want to spend most of our time in this morning, it won't be a real long time, is the first one that Matt read earlier, which is in Proverbs 6. And if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn there with me, please. The verses that we're going to be looking at are Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. You know, and before we go there, I, I talked a lot about myself, but I, I did that because I think that my own story sort of speaks to a, a common story in our culture. In my day job, some of you know that I work as an army chaplain for the New Hampshire National Guard. And one of the components of that job is I administer this nonprofit fund called the Chaplain's Emergency Relief Fund. People make donations to us, businesses make donations to that fund, and then we're able to write small grants to soldiers and their family when they have sort of a bona fide financial emergency, so like their heat is going to get turned off because they missed an oil bill, or they had a car repair bill that was bigger than they anticipated, and they need their car to get to work. So one of the things that I do every day is I review these applications in the course of my work, and... uh, some of the things that I've come across in some of those applications, some of the themes, I won't speak to anybody individually, have, have caused me to believe that this dilemma that I've been asking myself of what role is work supposed to take in my life, what, what, what role is work supposed to take in my life, is not unique to me. So some of the things that I've come across commonly, and this is sad and this is true, are guys who've quit work to pursue a career as a full-time player of World of Warcraft. If you played World of Warcraft, you know that's not crazy. Stuff like uh, wanting to practice more with their garage band. Not the video game, but their buddies in the, band, in, the, in the garage. The one that really bothers me the most, and that actually almost makes me kind of angry, is often I'll have a woman who will come into my office who is a wife and her husband is a soldier, and I'm thankful for his service to, the con- to our country. But she's coming into my office because he has quit his job for whatever reason, and now she's working full-time and being a mom pretty much full-time. And he doesn't have the... He, he's too ashamed to come into our office and ask for financial help, so he sends his wife to do it instead. And a lot of these guys are in that season between their late teens and their thirties, where they're still figuring out who they're going to be, and they've heard some, from some really bad influences, which is partly why it's so important for us to go to God's word. Um, so, so let's do that now. This passage in Proverbs six, we'll start with with verse six there, and I'm just going to read it. It says, "Go to the ant, sluggard; consider her ways and be wise." Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. I'm going to stop there because I think that the way Solomon has arranged this text, it's actually broken down into three uh, three little sections, and that's the first one. What he is doing here, Solomon is speaking to the same situation in his culture, essentially. When Matt launched this series, he told us that the book is written uh, to... to it's addressed to sons. It's, a, it's addressed to these young men who need to hear wisdom from the wisest men in the kingdom, the wisest man in the kingdom who is Solomon. I think that if we could go back in time, we'd realize that some of those cultural influences that we have that I list off, the, the Art Vandelay and, and Al Bundy, there must have been some corollary to that back then because obviously he's addressing a similar situation in his own time. And the way that he does it is essentially by telling a story and here he has introduced two characters. The first one is this ant, who he kind of combines with the imagery of a farmer to give us the model of what work is supposed to look like for someone who is God's child, who lives in the kingdom of God. The second character is this sluggard. In those two verses, three verses, consider the ant who has no chief officer or ruler, but prepares her bread in summer and gathers her her food in the harvest. There's a ton that we can learn from Solomon about God and about what God has called us to in our way of work. Um, and, and the biggest thing that I want to draw out is that this this ant is neither, is neither Al Bundy nor uh, Josh and Toby and Sam. The ant understands that God has instituted a rhythm for work in our lives that is neither lying on the couch at work or sleeping under your desk like George Costanza used to do in his office, nor is it working in your bed because you never rest. What the ant, the ant understands from agriculture is that there's a season for working hard and there's a season for rest. The second section is, is verse, eight, verse 9, which is essentially the question that Solomon is asking his listener. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? There's the second major character, is this sluggard. And what we learn about the sluggard is that the sluggard doesn't understand these seasons. To the sluggard, there's only one season, which is rest, all the time. Now, what you have to understand about the literature of the Proverbs, uh, I would say that Solomon is using a technique called rhetorical hyperbole, which is a big word, and Jesse doesn't like me to say it. But what he's doing is he's overstating something to make his case. So when you read that, you might say, well, of course I get out of bed every day and brush my teeth and do my thing. I'm not a sluggard. What Solomon is doing is is dramatically overstating, overstating the story here to make his case. But the point that he's making is that the sluggard doesn't understand this concept of a rhythm of work and rest, work and rest. To the sluggard, it's just all rest all the time. He goes on and says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber And want like an armed man So again, we've seen the ant who is the model worker Who works hard when it's the season to work And rests during that short rest season And then you have the sluggard Who does nothing but rest all the time Matt read a bunch of other Proverbs Which was helpful earlier And I want to point out I think there are four different kinds of sluggards That we see throughout Proverbs The first one is, is, is a category that we see here essentially is the self justifying sluggard who says it's just a little bit of sleep, it's just a little bit of slumber. i'm only just kind of going to violate the natural order that God has instituted of six days of, of work and a day of rest and i don't I don't use that legalistically that you can't you absolutely can't work on on Saturday, but the idea that there's a rhythm which is mainly work with, with a period of rest in between so this this sluggard says I'm just going to have a little bit of sleep. I'm just going to take a little bit of rest. I would call him sort of the self-justifying sluggard. The second category comes from Proverbs 14, 23, and you don't have to turn there, but it basically says, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. That's the sluggard that I would call the talker. And I know that guy pretty well because I've spent a lot of time in in that role in my life, and I have some close friends that have spent even more time there. That sluggard is the guy that says, I'll get to it eventually. I have this big grand plan that one day I'm going to do this thing. So right now I can't be bothered with, with this menial labor. And these are the guys that I see, unfortunately, often through the office in those, in, on, those, on those emergency relief fund applications. are guys who say, I can't be bothered getting a job at Lowe's this week because eventually I think I'm going to be a rock star or eventually I think I'm really going to be a professional video game developer. And maybe they will. But the reality is that right now it's just talk. They're not doing anything about it. They're not, they're not working towards that goal. And they're not, they're not working a job right now to take care of their family. The third category comes from Proverbs 28, 19-20, which says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. This sluggard is closely related to the talker. I call him the grass is greener sluggard. He's the guy that has a job right now but puts basically no effort into it, doesn't really bother to show up, is dishonest with his employer because this job is awful. His circumstances are are, are wretched. So why should he put any energy in here? He really should be in that better job. He really should be in that job where there's where there's more glory. So... Those, those are sort of the, the four categories of sluggers that I saw throughout the Proverbs, the self-justifying sluggard, the talker, the excuse maker, and the grass is greener sluggard. Um, and as I, was, as I was looking at those different categories, sort of the, the straw man that, that came up in my mind was, in our culture, a lot of us do have jobs. Unfortunately, there is, I think, 10% unemployment right now. And I want to say that I don't, I don't mean at all to come across as unsympathetic to people who don't have a job because the job market is just really rough right now. But for many of us who do have a job or who are working hard at school, it's easy for us to say, I don't identify at all with this character, the sluggard, because I'm doing this thing, I'm either in school or I'm, I, I actually am working a job. And, and, and there I would refer you to Al Bundy. So this is the, sort of the fifth subcategory, which I, w- I would call the Al Bundy sluggard. If you remember Al Bundy at all, he had a job, but he pretty much hated it. And when he came home from work, he pretty much felt entitled to sit on, on his duff on the couch because his wife was going to go out and spend all his money on exotic handbags or whatever, whatever it was she, she spent her money on. So as a consequence, he never really put any energy into being a good father or being a good husband or leading spiritually in his home, even if that concept was anywhere near his mind. And I would argue that that's sort of a fifth category of slugger that I think is probably the one most relevant in our culture today today. To be aware of Is that we As men often and, and, and this can be true of wives too Have a job Or we're doing this thing and I, and I know this is something That I battle Where I feel like I've earned my right To rest Because I went and worked Eight hours At the beginning of the day as in, I'm a new dad As a lot of you know Kind of new Nine months And it's so easy for me To put in a, a long hard day In the office And then commute an hour home And get home And when Jesse needs to Hand me the baby Because she's been A full time mom all day I feel entitled to instead turn on the TV or go and do some more work in the basement in, in the office away from her because I've earned that right working my job. I think that if, that if Solomon were here speaking directly into our culture, he would confront that Al Bundy mindset and say that this is a whole other category of sluggard that doesn't also work equally at hard at being at home, being engaged as a father, and being engaged as a husband. So get, getting back to the text, though, as it wraps up in verse 11, it's interesting that Solomon says that poverty will come upon you like ro- a robber and want like an armed man. When I read that, it sort of struck a dis- dissonance in my mind that it seems like Solomon is using poverty as the motive why you, shouldn't, why you should work hard, why you shouldn't be a sluggard. As I thought of everything I know from what the New Testament teaches about money, from Jesus' lifestyle, from the epistles and the gospels, I had a hard time reconciling that. The idea that uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, um, all that the New Testament teaches about poverty. Um, Matt's sermon last week was very helpful getting to that, to that topic. He pointed out that there's a broad range of, of, of meanings for the word poverty as it occurs in the Old Testament. And, and what we really have to do as we come to that is, is sort of broaden our understanding of what poverty means. So um, I, I spent a bunch of time looking at the different words for poverty throughout the Old Testament. There's actually seven of them. And if you'll just humor me a little bit to to think about the Hebrew in the Old Testament, there are seven different Hebrew words that occur throughout the Old Testament that we typically translate into our English idea of poor or poverty. So there's one that refers to what I would call the pious poor who have rejected material possessions because they see it as idolatrous and they want to devote themselves to worship. And that's a specific Hebrew word. There's another kind of poor that comes up in Ecclesiastes which is a, a, a good kind of poor person because he's wise and poor, even though his circumstances have made him poor. He's often used in contrast to the, the rich king who is foolish, who will one day come into a different kind of poverty. And then you come up on the, on the kind of poverty that we have in our text here today. As I was trying to think of a good way to convey the meaning of the sense of that word poverty, I was reminded there's a whole class of sort of sages of wisdom in our own culture today who I would say produce their own sort of proverb. One example that came out about 10 years ago was the idea that you shouldn't go chasing waterfalls. So if you know who I'm talking about, this is, this is the band TLC. And I, I realize that I'm probably the whitest guy in the room, but I'm going to attempt to sing a little bit of TLC because I think that it's going to valuably illuminate this concept of poverty. The, li- the line goes, you, you, you have no car, but you're walking... Oh, yes, son, I'm talking to you. You live at home with your mama. Oh, yes, son, I'm talking to you. You have a shorty. Jesse says it's shoddy, but I can't say that. You got a shorty, but you don't show no love. Oh, yes, son, I'm talking to you. You want to be with me, but no money. Oh, yeah, I don't want no scrubs. You all know that song. No scrubs, right? So the song is ridiculous, and I've embarrassed myself enough here that now you can understand why I only preach about once a year. But the, the... This song is actually super, super helpful. This word poverty that comes up here in Proverbs chapter 6 is almost perfectly corollary to what that song is talking about. It's someone who simply by virtue of their own laziness and lack of motivation has absolutely zero social standing, zero class, and, and not even the basic necessities that they need to live in life. Not because they've piously rejected materialism, as a form of idolatry. But just because they simply lack the gumption to get out of bed. They don't follow through. They talk about what they're going to do down the road. They make excuses for why they're not working hard at the job right, they have right now. And they live basically like Al Bundy. So I would say that as we read the Proverbs, we almost could, could remove the word "slugger," sluggard and use the word scrub instead. Which kind of brings me to my, my second main point. Now that we've sort of spent some time working through that, that text... I think the question that we have to ask is, is sort of the so what question. What's, 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 what's really the spiritual point where the rubber meets the road? So as, as New Kingdom Christians, we understand that, that we've been made new creatures in Christ and that we live for the, for the New Kingdom. And honestly, I, I like to think that as a believer, money really isn't that big of a motivation for me, although I don't want to be a scrub. But what does that have to do with the gospel? Well, I would say that at this point, it has everything to do with the gospel. And, and, and the ant is the perfect model of why. What the ant understood was that from the very beginning of redemptive history, if you go all the way back to Genesis 1, in the creation, God instituted that natural rhythm of work. Even before the fall on the, on the earth, the model of God's character was as a worker. It wasn't, it wasn't by leisure that God created the world but by his diligent and careful and orderly work that he accomplished over those six days and then instituted that rhythm of work followed by rest. In doing so, not coincidentally, God created a world where there are seasons, where it's not always summer. I just had a week of vacation and it was amazing. I went to the beach like three times this week. Uh, Jesse and I went shopping at Kittery yesterday, but I can't live like that all the time. That's my summer vacation for that one week. The rest of the other 51 weeks out of the year, I need to work hard. I need to take care of my family. And God instituted that rhythm of seasons early on, that it was summer and then fall and then winter and spring. Farmers understand that you plant in the spring. The the crops grow in the summer. And on the farms that I grew up on, you spend the summer doing maintenance on your tractors so that you're ready to bring in the harvest when the fall comes and the combine isn't sitting broken down in the the barn. And then in the winter, you feed your livestock. You plan, as Matt talked about last week, you plan how you're going to plant seeds in the next year, how you're going to rotate crops from one field to the next. And even nature understands that that is God's rhythm. So even the ant lays up his food in the summertime. Even the frog knows to bury his way down into the mud when it gets cold in the fall to hibernate and then spend the summer eating flies and doing whatever else frogs do. That God has a natural rhythm that is work and rest is clear throughout nature. I think a misconception that I had that, that, that is maybe common is that this whole concept of work as an aspect of human living and as part of our citizenship in the new kingdom came in after the fall is, is faulty. If you were to look to Genesis, and you don't have to turn there again, I'll, I'll read it for you, before the fall, one of the first things that God did almost immediately after creating a man and woman was he set them to hard work. He said in Genesis one twenty-eight, God said to, 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 the, to the people in the garden, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That is work. We have a lot of people in here who are managers Matt manages a big budget at at the Revere Public School District. Justin manages a security team at one of the the bigger fish processors until recently in the U.S. But this is a, a scale of management that should blow you away. God commissioned us to manage the whole earth before the fall and to be parents, which I am learning is incredibly hard work. God put us to hard work before the fall. What happened after the fall was the ground was cursed because of man's sin. In, in Genesis chapter 3, God said to, to Adam and Eve, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, and by the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread until you return to the dirt. For from dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. It wasn't work that came with the curse, it was that pain and misery as an aspect of work that came with the curse. Even though this age is evil, though, and it's fallen, God has not ceased to be at work in the earth. He continues to work. We often forget that because we have a good, what I would call, doctrine of creation, but oftentimes we don't have a well-developed doctrine of providence, which is an understanding that God didn't set the world in motion and then step back and just sit down in an eternal sort of Sabbath, although I think there's a sense that he's in an eternal Sabbath. His rest was was providentially sustaining the earth, which is work. Hebrews 1.3 says that God is upholding the universe by the power of his hand. So what does that have to do with us? Well, first of all, we should understand that as believers, when our identity is in Christ, we are called to join God in expressing his character on this earth, which is that of hard, diligent work in whatever we do. Um. I think that to understand that it's helpful to look back to some of the early reformers of Protestant Christianity, Martin Luther and John Calvin. Back in the period of the Reformation, in the in the culture of the Roman Catholic Church, there was a social hierarchy that was basically set up, and this is sort of what I was getting a, a peek at in my college years when I became a new believer. There's this social hierarchy that the only people who had any real uh, any value to what they did with their lives or any meaning. Were people who were clergy They were the only ones that were educated uh, in, Depending on where you lived They were really the ones who held the power And then everybody else was doing this sort of Worldly meaningless work So when Martin Luther came along um, He said something that was incredibly profound And I want you to hear this well in our church I think that this is something that's, that's meaningful for us to hear as a congregation In still a culture Where it's easy to feel like pastors are glorified And other work is maybe second tier what, what Martin Luther profoundly said was totally different. He taught that ordinary Christians don't need to be monks or priests in order to be engaged in pious or God-honoring work. He said that all legitimate vocations, which in his time included baking, farming, blacksmithing, and shop-owning, were, according to uh, his teaching in the Word of God, worthy of divine approval because God had created the world good. And so work in this creation was not sinful, or worldly, but valuable because of what they call the doctrine of vocation. So that's another another sort of seminary word that basically means that God has given you the work that you do. Whether you're a pastor or whether you work in the financial industry, whether you're a school teacher, whether you work in construction or a trade or you're an attorney, God has put something before you. God has given you good work to do. And what's your right response to do is to understand that whether you're a pastor or a, or a financier or a, an accountant, the way you do your work is participating in God's work of providentially sustaining his creation. So security guards who secure their area well, who protect the community that they're charged with and take that job seriously, that's part of God's common grace, providential sustaining of his creation, which was created good. And when you become a, cre- a, a Christian, when you become a new creature and you're invited into God's kingdom and you do that work that way, as if it's part of God's common grace, providence, sustaining creation, you're reflecting the new kingdom that is to come in the way you're living your life right here and right now. Secondly, uh, this, the second major reason wh- where this has something to do with our lives, this idea of God's providence is, is, is what the reformers would call the priesthood of all believers, which basically says that all work that we do is worship because it's sanctified by God when we approach it with prayer and thanksgiving. 1 Timothy 4 4 through 5 says, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. Romans 12 talks about offering yourselves up as a living sacrifice. I would ask, do you take that approach with your job? So uh, in personal disclosure, this was a struggle I had this, this early this spring as I, as I started this new job, this full-time job working as an army chaplain. I have to get up at 5 now. I'm not a student anymore. I'm almost 30. I have to get up at 5 a.m., spend an hour driving to work, I get to the office at about 7. I have a lot of really mundane meetings throughout the day that feel really mundane to me. I spend time paging through people's emergency relief applications. I counsel people that sometimes honestly sound like they're just really whining. Uh, there's a lot of things about my job that did not feel like gospel, God-glorifying pastor work to me. And I was beginning to find that I had a bad attitude. So then I sit in the car on an, for another hour ride home. And by the way, my, my air conditioning doesn't work in my car, so this summer that has made the whole thing even worse. But I would sit in my car for that ride home. Yeah, feeling sorry for myself. Um, basically feeling, what am I doing with my life? And God, as I was meditating on this sermon and thinking about this, has really spoken to me that I can approach that job as worship. If I, if I cover it in, in thanksgiving and prayer, it is a good thing, and that the way I do that job is worship. And finally, it is sanctification, and this is true for any job, and maybe especially so, some, some of your jobs other than pastoring and what I mean by that is that God extends grace to you through your work by making you more like him. There's a myriad of examples of ways that this happens. Some of them are things like self-control. So God is teaching me that I have to get up every morning at 5 o'clock to be to my office on a, in a timely fashion, that I have to be patient and kind and, and merciful with those people who come to me whose problems seem trivial and I feel like they're wasting my time. God is working, sanctifying work through my life Do the job that I have. And I would challenge you that he is doing the same thing in your life in whatever job he has called you to. So the reason that it's so important, I think, in light of the gospel, in light of the New Testament, for us to not be slobs, for us to not be scrubs, rather, to not be sluggards, is for that threefold reason. It's because it is a vocation that God has called us to by which we participate in his work in the world It is worship because we are his holy priesthood and it is a sanctifying means of grace to us. So in closing, let me just close with this passage from Colossians that Paul wrote. He said, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And I want to just leave you with the challenge to ask yourself, the way I'm approaching my job, whatever it is, am I being a sluggard? Am I on my way to being a scrub in Solomon's rhetorical hyperbole or am I doing this in the name of the Lord Jesus? Am I putting myself, am I putting my shoulder to the plow to use that, that farm imagery again in a way that brings honor to God, that blesses the earth that I live in right now, and that is working sanctification in my own soul? So let me, let me pray for us in closing. God, we thank you that in your wisdom, you are a God of work. You are not a God of laziness. You are not a God who talks about creating but never does. You are not a God who, who talks about how some other creation could have been better and fails to sustain the creation that you have. You are not a God that it works hard in some areas but is just utterly lazy and abject in others. You are a God who is faithful and true, and the way you work to create and to sustain your creation and ultimately to consummate your creation in the new kingdom reflects that character that you have. God, we thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit made available to us by your son, Jesus, we have the ability to walk in a newness of life, even in the way that we do our jobs. God, I pray that you continue to speak to our hearts about this. I pray that you would shape us as a community to be a people who work hard at whatever it is that you've called us to do. Lord, help us to worship you through our jobs to not see them as drudgery or to see them as an obstacle to our worship, but rather to see them as a means of worship and your gift of grace to us. Lord, we thank you that you've made this all possible because of your Son who you sent to save us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.